Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Cozy Corner Book Club with your hosts, Sean and Lindsay. Lindsay and I have been best friends for over 15 years and spent most of that time dreaming up books to write, houses to build, fandom bars to open, and now a blog of our own, Sean Lindsay's Best Friend's Guide to Everything. On the blog, you can find meal prep recipes, travel guides, book reviews, lists of the latest shows and movies you should be watching, and our best adulting tips. Find us online at bfguidetoeverything.com. Every month, Lindsay and I choose a different book to read and to discuss with all of you. This month, we will celebrate Halloween by discussing Frankenstein, a modern Prometheus. This classic story created the sci-fi genre. Along with our book podcast each month, we also post discussion questions on Instagram and Facebook each week. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to join in the conversation. So we'll begin with a brief summary. Our story begins with a series of letters between Robert Walton and his sister in England. Robert has found a man on the edge of death in the Arctic Ocean. The man is Victor Frankenstein. And after some time on the ship, the two men become friends and Victor begins to tell the story of his experiences. He starts off the American story with his upbringing. His parents love to travel, and his mother tries to help the poor. The family find and adopt a child, Elizabeth, whom Victor instantly connects with and loves. Victor begins his love of learning and science by reading the works of great teachers and philosophers. Before leaving to go to university, Elizabeth gets sick, and after contracting the disease, Victor's mother, Caroline, dies. At the university, Victor obsesses over his studies, and he impresses his teachers and peers. With his research in chemistry, alchemy, and electricity, he makes a plan to recreate and reanimate a dead body. After bringing the creature to life, Victor is immediately struck with guilt. He runs away from his creation in fear and disgust. The monster roams the countryside while Victor is nursed back to health by a friend. From home. Victor is commanded to return home after someone has strangled his youngest brother. The housekeeper is wrongly accused, but willingly goes to the gallows. Victor knows who the killer is, but is unable to reveal the identity to his family or the police. He leaves home to try and comfort himself. While out Mount Monovert, he encounters his monster, who asks for his own mate. When Victor refuses, the monster asks for his story to be heard. The monster taught himself to read and understand language so he can follow the lives of his adopted family. The monster finds a notebook and a series of letters that Victor had lost. He learned of his creation and, while rejected by humanity, chose to punish only his creator's family in retaliation for his pain. Victor refused to make a second monster, but is convinced to do so when the monster says he will go to South America. Victor makes plans to go to Scotland and begin a secret project. Before he leaves, he agrees to marry Elizabeth when he returns. After some time, he destroys the project and dumps the remains in the ocean. The monster vows revenge on Victor for going back on the deal. While at sea, Victor's boat is blown off course in a storm, and he ends up in Ireland. Victor is then made to stand trial for murder, and a local magistrate defends him in court, where, his, where he is declared innocent. Victor is upset knowing all the pain and death he has caused, but makes his way home to marry Elizabeth. <clears throat> the wedding has been set, and Victor is on edge, worrying about the threat for the monster to be with him on his wedding night. 
The ceremony goes well, and as Victor tries to cover all the possible entrances the monster might use to get into the wedding chamber, the monster goes into Elizabeth's room and strangles her. Victor begins to chase after the monster, wanting revenge. He follows the monster through Europe and Russia before almost catching him in the Arctic Circle. This is where he meets Robert Walton from the beginning of the story. The monster appears from the mist to visit his creator one last time. The monster enters the cabin and tells Walton his side of the story. After Victor's death, the monster tells Walton he will burn his own funeral pyre. The monster disappears into the darkness, never to be seen again. All right, hi guys. Today we have a really special guest. This is my old literature teacher from high school. I'm super excited to have her on, Miss Carrie Andriani. You want to say hi? Hello, everyone. Thanks for having me. So we're super excited, um, and we'll go ahead and just hop into the discussion. Okay, so the first question is, who is the actual monster in Frankenstein? I kind of thought it was more um, like actual Frankenstein, you know, not the monster, but Frankenstein was kind of the, I'm just, he had, I had a bad taste in my mouth about him. I mean, he... You know, at first sounded like a good guy, and, you know, he loved his family, obviously, and he, you know, like, had this pursuit of knowledge and really wanted to, you know, get into, you know, he had this goal, and he spent all his time getting to the goal, and then as soon as he created this thing, he was, like, horrified with himself and just completely, you know, left it to its own devices, which, <laughs> I mean, I don't know, his whole, I understand why he was upset, and obviously this monster is, like, killing people that he loves, but... Like, he's the one that started the whole thing, and then rather than, I don't know, either get rid of the monster or, like, he just, I don't know, left it to his own devices, like I said. So, I didn't really care for him, I don't think. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I agree. And, in fact, I'll say I saw that question as I was reading the book, so I have an unfair advantage. I was kind of thinking of it as I was <laughs> as I was reading it. So I saw your question on social media, uh, Sean, so it kind of got me thinking, but... Um, because clearly he's called the monster, the creation of Frankenstein, called the monster. He's described as a monster. He does monstrous things. He kills people. He's, you know, but when you look at it, I think you make a good point is he, um, Frankenstein abandoned him and that it's that abandonment and that rejection that turns him into the monster. So it's a good question. Who's the real monster? Yeah, I mean, he doesn't know any better, you know, like he, I mean, I think we'll get later on into like, what is humanity in itself, but yeah. I mean, he, he has no concept of right and wrong. He's just like, oh, I'm angry. This is how I'm going to use his anger. And he doesn't fully understand. He doesn't, you know, he didn't grow up with a family to teach him right and wrong. And Frankenstein, like Victor didn't do anything to teach him that. And so, I mean, Victor knew better. Frankenstein didn't. Right. For me, it's, the monster was less so a person than kind of the spirit that kind of like encapsulate the entire book, which mm -hmm. is the idea of innovation without restraint. Because mm -hmm. uh, throughout the whole book, you know, they keep they talking about philosophers and all these great thinkers and teaching and learning and education. A lot of, we meet a lot of very educated people, but a lot of them stop and go, hey, you know chill out, you got to think about what you're doing. And, you know, he just says, 
nope, I'm just going to keep dreaming big like the old philosophers because they said that there's so much possibility in the world, we can literally do anything. Whereas the modern thinkers that they discuss are a little bit more grounded. They're like, hey, you know, baby steps in terms of progress. And and I, to me, the monster is just that spirit of constant innovation, constantly doing something for the sake of doing it uh-huh. rather than having a good reason. I like right. crazy ambition. Yeah. Without responsibility. I, th- I think that is, I th- that you make an excellent point. Um, you know, I think when I was, when I was reading it, um, I mean, I don't know. I think the, the characters could have definitely handled, handled things very differently. Um, but like Lindsay was saying, I mean, the creation did not have that kind of reasoning. He didn't have that, you know, that nurturing or anything to go by, um, basically just watching a, a family. So, um, you know, he doesn't have that that point of reference of, of where he can gather any kind of, um, you know, moral compass or, you know, what it what kind of behaviors to do so he just reacts based on his his feelings so it, it that's a that's an excellent point i like how you tied that into the beginning of when they're talking about those philosophers and those and those inventors and the and that was his inspiration that was victor's inspiration for creating the the monster or the creation yeah so kind of going off of that what would you guys say are the qualities that really make us human Okay, so what, when I took this, I kind of took it, you know, kind of inspired by the book on a scientific approach. You know, just thinking what makes us human as opposed to what separates us from other members of the animal kingdom. Mm-hmm. And I sat here and I, you know, went through a little bit of research and one of the, you know, there's not much that really separates us from animals. We all grieve. We all, you know, have the ability to sympathize with you know, others in our species or even others with, among other species. All, you know, there's ability to plan at least short term. But what separates humanity is the ability to plan long term and our ability to think more abstractly. You know, little less physical, we're able to have large theological discussions and to communicate that very easily you know we're even over skype like we are now Mm um so for me it's it was really difficult to really think about this question of what makes us truly human because you know like Lindsay's dog sammy haven't seen sammy in forever but when i did see sammy Uh after it'd been like two years sammy just jumps into bed with me and falls asleep on top of me sammy obviously recognizes me has a connection with me and you know we have that relationship you know what really i I didn't know how else to think of what makes us human yeah no that's interesting um when what came to my mind uh when lindsay posted that question was i you know you're right animals have emotions they you know they get excited you know they they um they definitely have um that emotional aspect as as do humans so what makes us human isn't necessarily the emotion so the even though the creation had this you know, emotion of, of, of hatred and anger in response to the rejection. I think what I got out of it and what I, again, I kind of saw the questions as I was reading. So uh, I don't know if that was fair or unfair, but it really (laughs) helped me to kind of, you know, pay attention as I was reading. And um, I feel like um, to be human is um, to feel like you're part of 
society. And I want to say his um, one of his quotes that um, uh, that the creation said. Um, in fact, if I think I even like marked it, but it said. Um, I think it was on page 163 where he says um, he seeks to feel the affections of a sensitive being and become linked to the chain of existence and events from which I am now excluded. So just I think being one of the qualities of being human is um, being connected to the existence of other humans and being and belonging. He just wanted to be a part of that family when he when he's been watching the family and that's his um, you know, he goes in to speak to the father and then when the when the children come home, um, you know, they completely reject him. That's when the anger starts. So I feel like his need as a his human need to become part of an existence of a, of a family is definitely a human quality and that just the desire to to belong yeah I think humanity a lot of it is just like the sum of our experiences like the people like you said the communities we're around the people we grow up with our families our friends like so much of that shapes who we are and how we reason through things and our you know range of emotions and I think a lot of what separates us from animals is like Sean said like long-term planning in the sense that we don't just make snap decisions and like go off instinct like we're able to reason through that and something might be the instinct but you're able to push past that whereas animal animals may not have quite that same capacity right. so it was a weird line and it was i think that also made it easier for me to empathize with the monster because like i knew he didn't have that and so like i said he didn't know right from wrong and so him killing these people like what did he know <laughs> you know he didn't he had no community around him to show him what was right and what was wrong. And so right. I, I, I didn't have the same empathy for Victor. Yeah, I think he knew what he was doing was wrong. Definitely later when he saw the reaction of, of the people and he realized this brings pain and this causes them, you know, pain. And, and I want to react out of, you know, my anger and cause these cause Victor pain because he's not doing what what I want him to do. But um but yeah, definitely, I feel like, do you, well, and this is a good question then too, and I, and I think I know the answer, um, but do you think that Frankenstein was more animal than human or more human than animal? I... The monster? Yes, I'm sorry. Okay, so here's the other thing. As I'm reading this, <laughs> I, I, I keep thinking like also like Herman Munster, which you can't think Herman, this is not Herman Munster. So then I started thinking the creation or the monster looked like um uh what's the harry potter one Voldemort with the with the okay so that's what i had to imagine him as because everything you've ever thought about frankenstein just throw that out the window as you read this book <laughs> frankenstein's the doctor that that created him and so we'll call him the creation that we think of frankenstein and so often, like, that's just, like, I mean, anytime you see, you know, Halloween stuff, it's like, oh, what are you dressing up as? Frankenstein. And you're the monster. You're not Victor, you know? Like, right, exactly. It's just gotten skewed with all the different remakes and stuff, I guess. So that was, yeah, I, it wasn't something I thought about until, like, our last podcast, Sean mentioned that. And I was like, oh, you're right. Like, it's the, yeah. the creation. Well, and then the funny thing is, is when he was going to build a, a bride. So I'm thinking, oh, the bride of Frankenstein is coming. <laughs> No, there's no bride of Frankenstein in Frankenstein. So, again, if anything you know about Frankenstein, throw it away before you read the book. <laughs> but uh, going back to your question, um, 
this immediately, just in the moment while we're talking about it, it reminded me of the whole concept of the Jurassic World, that first movie. You know, they brought back, using technology, this dinosaur that was like hybrid with a bunch of other different species, and it grew up as the only one of its kind. Therefore, it didn't learn, you know, humans are, you know, taking care of me. It didn't learn, you know, social interactions. It just, hey, I feel pain. I need to react. Hey, I'm hungry. I need to react. And that's kind of like what Frankenstein was doing. You know, everything was all based on instinct because he was not, you know, brought up in the way that we were brought up. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I think the way that um, Mary Shelley writes, too, she really has a, an excellent way of getting into, like, the emotions of the characters. Um, so, I mean, you could see, in my opinion, like, I could see how the creation or the or the monster, I, and I don't know how, had these human um, attributes to it. I mean, it felt like a human and, and expressed himself, you know, um, as as a as a human would, so um, it was easy to dislike him for his behavior because he appeared so human. But then, like you're saying, Sean, you've got to remember he was created. He was, and, and even the creature says that I wasn't nurtured by a family. I I mean that's kind of part of his plea to to Victor. He's like, look, you've done this to me. I I didn't get to be. Uh, I didn't grow up with a family. I didn't get to be nurtured. I was created and then abandoned by my creator. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, it's just, it's such an interesting, um, he's an interesting creature for sure. I mean, theoretically, because remember, the first thing he saw upon being created was Dr. Frankenstein. Yeah. So, I mean, quite possibly there was some sort of imprinting process. And, you know, I mean, for all we know, if he saw a, a duck for the first time, he would have been like, well, I'm a duck. And, you know, he would have been walking around quacking the entire book. <laughs> but he saw yeah. a human, so he's like, this is how I'm supposed to behave. Right. Yeah. Interesting. I think he definitely started off more monster, which, I mean, it's hard because he's like an adult, you know, so you have to kind of like, well, if that were a baby and a baby was abandoned like that, but could still fend for itself, like, would that be kind of the same thing where they would not know right from wrong? Whereas this, yes, he looks like an adult, but he, he has no, like, you know, 18 years of life experience to go off of to kind of, I don't know, be able to reason through things. And so right. and as he kind of he observes the family for so long and he learns the language and kind of understands more about society and his place in it. He grows more humanoid in my eyes, at least, but I think That's his nice. first several actions, like until he kind of had someone to observe and could learn, I think that was definitely more monster animalistic. Yeah, no, that's a very good point. So next up is why is Frankenstein filled with disgust? calling the monster my enemy as soon as he has created him? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Again, I just kind of think of like the, the Voldemort. <laughs> like, I mean, and he does build him, I think he says like eight feet tall and you know, his, his skin was yellow with black hair and black lips and like the physical features that he created him with are, what we would associate with a with a monster however when you create something i mean 
like even as an artist, you know, you you paint something to you, it's beautiful. It may not be to anybody else. I I, I find it interesting that he didn't find his creation so beautiful. Yeah. So what what are what are your thoughts? Well, I mean, and he worked with it for how long? It's not like, yeah, like two he years. It. Then he was like, oh look, you're you look awful. Like no, he'd worked with it for however long. He knew what it was gonna look like. Yeah. I think if anything, he was more disgusted with himself and like realizing that moment like I don't know if maybe he didn't quite believe it would happen you know like obviously he had some kind of optimism where he wouldn't have put all the effort towards it but I mean maybe he was kind of hoping it wasn't going to happen and then when it did it was like oh my god what have I done and he realized kind of the weight of you know he just created this thing that he didn't know is it animal is it human is it will it be able to you know I mean he made this massive thing that obviously is very powerful it can go smash through whatever he wants you know it's terrifying so like I said I think he was more disgusted in himself than he was in the creation and so because of that he abandoned it exactly I will disagree with you on the fact that I don't think he truly recognized what he was building um you know you were mentioning like he knew all the parts he knew what was going to happen and I don't think he truly did because I feel like him running away from, you know, calling the monster my enemy is because the monster represented obsession. It represented that end goal because this whole time he is seeking, he is on a, like I wrote down notes. (laughs) He is on a quest for knowledge and glory specifically. You know, he, it is a reckless ambition. Mm -hmm. The step, the steps to getting there didn't matter to him. You know, the end result didn't matter as long as he got there. Uh-huh. And so, like, when, you know, when he gets to the end, yeah, he has this, you know, what he sees as this very grotesque being in front of him. But that's because he didn't take the time of thinking about every part, thinking about the end result and the possible consequences. Right. He's just, I want to be great. I want to have glory. I'm, I already know I'm the best. I've been pressing all my teachers, all of the students. I have... You know, he keeps talking about himself in the beginning as, you know, oh, I'm going to continue following, you know, emerging these past and present thinkers because nobody else is doing it and I'm better than everybody else. Mm-hmm. He definitely has a very high opinion of himself. Mm-hmm. And when he finally realizes how obsessed that he's gotten, right. that he has literally created this grotesque figure that literally represents his obsession, because at the end of this, he is, you know, pale, white, super thin, you know, he is clearly unhealthy. Mm-hmm. I mean... He seemed kind of fragile the whole time, to be honest. Right. <laughs> yeah, he did. He was always sick, and he would be in bed for months, and I mean, that's not... Because of obsession. He, yeah. he literally could not stop what he was doing. And he kept putting, yeah. making himself sick by doing, following his obsession. Yeah. yeah, and I think when you play God and you create and manipulate and create something unnatural, that fear of what have I done, that's heavy. It is. It's heavy. And I feel like you're right. Once he got to the point that he thought he wanted to be at, he realized, yeah, what have I done? It's it's too much. But it's interesting, you know, that you note that really that you're right, that obsession was right there at the beginning, but you notice that after he's made that creation, that's gone. Yeah, I mean, the the obsession is is gone, and the weight of what he's done carries throughout the rest of the story. Yeah. Kind of backtracking a little bit, I just thought of something. Um, as far as, like, the who was the actual monster, I think the one thing that, like, 
was unforgivable. One of the things that was unforgivable to me that Victor did was, you know, he did all this and everyone knew he was, you know, at college or he was at university, he was doing whatever, he's got this big project. And then he, you know, he didn't tell anybody about it afterwards, which I understand until it gets to the point where like literally one of his pseudo sisters is about to die because of this. And he still won't tell anybody what he did. Like he had the opportunity to admit to what he'd done and say who the real killer was. And he let her die anyways, like to save his own skin. And so that was another just, you know, his, and maybe it was because of his ambition or just, he was, he felt guilty, but I I think that's probably part of why he was sick all the time. He's sick with guilt. I think he just truly couldn't accept what he had done. Yeah. Like he, he never, I don't think he ever came to terms of, I created this life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Robert, we talk about him having ambition and, you know, all this time trying to be like the scholars. And so what do you guys think the serious consequences of the acquisition of knowledge might be? Yeah. Well, one, you know, they, you know, one of the things that, you know, people like to think of like the seven deadly sins and they like to think that lust is just, you know, what we all every day think of lust, but this is a story of lust. He is lusting after knowledge because it's no, like, once again, he has put himself into, you know, health scares and the times where he has had people take care of him for weeks and weeks to recover because he cannot let go of this chase for knowledge. And it kind of reminds me, you know, now, you know, now I have to be the only person bringing up Harry Potter, mm-hmm. but of Dumbledore. You know, in the, you know, in the seventh book, we learn about his whole history with Grindelwald as young wizards and how he was so, he needed companionship so much that he helped inflame the ideas of someone who was going to start this whole giant war. And he didn't recognize what was going on, but the two of them egged each other on. And they just kept getting, it kept getting darker and darker because they're like, well, technically we can do this, and it was only made to do this, but here's where we can really take it. And it was just kind of that like that unhealthy level of what you can do. Just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. And part of that is in the pursuit of knowledge, you may kind of cross those lines that you don't need to be crossing. And um, Right. Yeah, you like you were saying, you get blinded by the by the ambition, and um, and before you know it, it's out of your hands. And I think that's what happened with Victor. Is I mean, he couldn't control it. He couldn't control him. He was on a rampage, and even you know when he thought he could, he realized he was always one step ahead of him. You know, especially there towards the end when after Elizabeth, um, after the monster killed Elizabeth. I mean. Then he goes and kills his his best friend, frames him for it pretty much, and you know, and then they they go on this this wild chase. But um, yeah, it's I think you lose control, um, you know, and we see it in all all of those movies as well. And on top of that, not once does he ask for help. Right. This is a solo journey, and he is facing the consequences by himself. Yeah. Where the monster grew up isolated and was forced to be isolated because of his form. Right. He isolated himself because of his ambition and his guilt. 
Right. What I love too about the book as the is the writing. I'm telling you, I, mean, I felt his burden. Like I really felt like his depression. Like I felt his shame. Like it is a very well written book. Um, you know, Mary Shelley, just the art in it, uh, and then and that's maybe the literature treats you. This comes out of me. I was just like, it is very artfully written, and it's you really do feel the pain of the creation of the monster and of of Victor and and even of, of Elizabeth when she's you know writing these letters. Um, so I think part of this story is is successful and all the many layers that are in it. Um, it the writing in of itself really gets you to feel what these what these characters are feeling. And you're right, you do. I felt a lot of a lot of pain. You know, for Victor, he seemed to always be sick, but I also felt the um, the shame, the the guilt, the um, of of each character. It's it was very well done. Yeah, the characters were very well done. Yeah, very three dimensional. Especially, I was surprised to get so much of that from the monster, just yes. because you know, our interpretation of Frankenstein is usually they're you know like in movies they're mute or can talk very little or you know there's just not much there. But. Like a mummy, like. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, he's like Shakespeare. Oh my gosh, he's amazing. Yeah, no, a very eloquent and you know, she she did. She it's it's an amazing, amazingly well written um story as well. I I and that's important, I feel like, you know, to really understand what these characters are going through by the end, you feel it. Well, the fact that she was able to truly like make you know, I'm my, myself as well truly feel like I am no longer me. I am like sitting here in a whole nother world. Yeah. That's a talent that not every writer can boast about. And she nailed it. And there's a reason that this is a classic book. Agreed. Yep. I would agree. Okay. It was very elegantly written too. Like it was, and that might just be, you know, the way that things were, you know, like how they talked back then. But I mean, it was just so pretty. It was. (laughs) <laughs> I found myself reading paragraphs over and over again, just even about like the moonlight and the stars. And I was like, it really was artful. I mean, I, you feel like you're reading art and I think you're right. That's why it's a classic. I wish I would have taught this. Like, <laughs> I mean, it really was, it had so many literary, you know, um, devices in it. And it, it, it's, it's a really good example of a, of a literary work and so many levels. Yeah. And I listened to the audiobook instead of reading it. Um, and it was, I think, Dan Stevens, which you watched Downton Abbey, right? Yes. I think he was in Downton Abbey, wasn't he? Oh, gosh, I don't know. Which one is he? Oh, well, I haven't seen it, so I don't know. But he's. Lindsay, you have to watch it. Oh, spoiler alert. He's the dude who dies, says my roommate. <laughs> oh, but is he the one who died? Okay. <laughs> But um, so he did the audiobook, and that was and like I really enjoyed that too. Like hearing you know you could really hear the emotion in him as well, like as he's reading it. And I think I got more out of it that way than I would have just reading it myself. So if you haven't read the or listen to audiobook, I recommend that too. Good. Just you know, an extra level of um, yeah. kind of emotion and all that. Yeah. So scholars sometimes use Frankenstein as an argument against scientific technology that creates life forms. Others argue that it's not the technology itself, but to the use which it is put that presents an ethical problem. What is Shelley's position and what is your position? It makes me think of um, like AI, um, which, what does that stand for again? 
Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, in college, we did a whole like ethics class and talked so much about AI and kind of the ramifications of giving, like you said, something unnatural, the ability to reason and to kind of think more like a human brain does and what that can mean for society. I mean, if you give, you know, same, you know, Terminator, you know, like that kind of idea, like, <laughs> like we're looking at the destruction of society. If you give too many of these things power, because then they overtake the actual humans. Just, just give it an ex- like a, a small extension cord, and you're good. <laughs> <laughs> Can't go very far. <laughs> but then what happens when it gets smart enough to like design a battery pack? Right. Then you know, like smart house. Come on, guys. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I I thought the same thing. I, what I was thinking of, um, you know, I feel like, oh gosh, I, I definitely think there's a line. Um, and uh, once it's crossed, uh, it, you, it's problematic, like in Terminator, like in Frankenstein. I feel like um, technology in and of itself is not evil. You know, it can be used for good and it can be used for evil. Um, but once it crosses that line... Um, it, it can, it, like we were just saying, you almost lose control of it. You, you don't have control over it anymore. I mean, Victor lost control of this monster. He had crossed the line. He had given it reason. He had given it human qualities and lost control of it. Um, so I think things that are, you know, technology that are in control, I mean, where that line is, is, is probably the big debate, but, um, I feel like, technology is is good and it is kind of neutral it can be used for both kind of like you know they say money is a neutral object you know like yeah it, it is what you make of it it is what you exactly. use it for exactly so i would i would say that but i think too when you cross a line and you lose control that's when it becomes problematic and that's what happened in this story so i took another kind of more scientific themed approach for this question and I thought about some of the the big controversies that are going on particularly in medicine and I'm you know we have you know it was a big deal when it's it's always a big deal when we can determine whether a child's going to be born male or female earlier it's always a big deal and it's like well if you make it earlier some parents may say oh I may not want a girl or a boy and terminate the pregnancy that's always a big ethical argument when it comes to advances, particularly for children. But one of the really, one of the new things is there's this kick on uh, genetic testing right now. You know, you can do the, I think Lindsay's done it, the, you, you've done it, the, uh, sorry? I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, the cough. And you, now there's, you know, they're now doing tests that you can, they can determine you know, what kind of genes are going to be passed on to your children. It's getting to the point where you might be able to very soon design the child right. that's going yeah. to be born. Yeah. yeah. You want it to have blue eyes, green eyes, red hair, blonde hair, yeah. Do you want them to have the genes that make them more athletic or more, you know, inclined to intelligence? Like, you know, as, as well as, hey, let's, you know, skip over the gene that brings early onset dementia and Alzheimer's and all these kind of other illnesses. And, you know, at what point is that okay? You know, then we may end up in a situation kind of like, uh, I know Lindsay didn't like the movie, The Man of Steel, 
But the whole premise of the beginning of that movie is that they stopped physically having children. They were designing children in these little incubation pods and they just kept popping them out and they all kind of became generic. Right. And at that point, nobody was truly an individual. Right. It wasn't until his birth, because his parents decide we're going to have a natural child, that, you know, this superhuman, well, super alien, I guess, um, <laughs> is born and has these fantastic abilities that nobody genetically modified to make happen. Nature itself allowed to happen. Right. And that's how Superman became super. Right. Yeah, there's been quite a few movies and books, you know, written about that, like this utopian society where everybody's going to, you know, be perfect. And I think that's, again, where we run into the problematic is that once we've crossed that line, that's when, I mean, I'm sure all those movies probably end not so good, right? I, something happens. It's It's problematic when we step in and... Um, I think kind of, you know, like with this story, and I mean, way before it's time, you know, this was written, what, 200 years ago, so, and we're still talking about it, we're still making movies about it. Yeah. It's the start of science fiction. Right. I mean, that's, I mean, she's way before her time, you know, in, in thought, uh, you know, with, with the story as well, so, um, yeah, it's, I mean, this is, you're right, it's a big debate, I mean, it's, it's, my personal opinion, I, I mean, again, I think every movie shows it. It's problematic when you step in and start messing with, um, you know, like I was saying before with Victor, um, you know, and why he was possibly horrified. When you realize you are playing God and you are creating something, that's a big responsibility. And you've, and if you lose control, which you're bound to do because you're not God and you don't control another person, it's going to, I mean, it's going to be problematic. And again, there's so many movies made of, of what happens. Um, and, and this is one of them, but it's, yeah, it, I, I think I, when you said that this started, or this was one of the beginnings of the, of the science fiction genre, I, again, like I reading it with that thought uh, in mind, um, it's, it, it really, it should be more widely read. This, mm -hmm. this book is pretty, amazing um you know the we and, and great conversation too I think it's one of those it's like on the list of books everyone says they've read but I haven't really you know like it's everyone's heard of it but how many people have actually read like the original and it's not yeah. that many they're like they've seen the movie one of the movies which are all wrong if you ask me <laughs> like I, I haven't seen one that was really true to the book yeah well I was just surprised because in addition to this just being a great literary piece, um, you know, sometimes reading these old classics, the language is so different mm -hmm. that sometimes it is hard to get through and hard to read through. But she did a very good job writing that not only were we able to understand the message and appreciate it, I felt, I mean, granted it is a fictional piece, but I did feel kind of transported back yeah. to that time period where okay, this is what it was kind of like to live. Yeah. I mean, obviously not in great detail, like a day in the life, but, right. you know, we kind of got a feel for the customs without prejudice. Yeah. You know, they picked up this girl from the village and says, oh, we're going to adopt you now. Right. And essentially this boy right here, you're going to marry him. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you were to write about that today, mm -hmm. 
probably would not go so well. Right. <laughs> um, but to read it in the way that in the way Mary writes it, there's no stigma. It's just it's simply put, this is how things are. Right. This is how things are going. And to me that was very interesting to yeah. kind of, you know, experience it that way. Yeah. I definitely think the characters are the are the main thing that draws that that draws you in here. There's not any kind of, I mean, yeah, it's almost like you know Switzerland and Europe and and the scenery and and the and the livelihood, you know, of them gathering the wood and building the fires. Like that is the backdrop, but it's not. Um, it's it's subtle, and mm-hmm. and it's just it's so again just so artfully done. It's it's hard to make it look this good. I mean, it is like good writers make it look easy. And, you know, at the end of it, you're like, that was well written. But I mean, it really, it takes a, a talent um, to, to make those characters again, like just so you feel what they're feeling and you are transported to where they are. Um, yeah. I, I thought that uh, I, I do. I definitely think more people need to read this because of, of the language and because of, you know, being transported, but, um, oh gosh, just so many levels of the story of, um, you know, like ethical and like you were saying with, you know, creation and, and now we're here with AI. I mean, we, we could be talking about this on, on just so many levels, but I'm so glad that you chose this book. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Um, I didn't know how I would like it just because Books like that are kind of hit or miss for me, but um, I think the audiobook definitely helped, but yeah. I enjoyed it. And it's crazy to think that she was 18 when she wrote this book. Oh my gosh, I did not know that. Yeah. Brilliant. Okay, now she's brilliant. She finished it, but she started it when she was 18. Wow. Can you imagine yeah. writing something that incredible at 18 years old? No. No. <laughs> now, but the real question is, is <laughs> you know, she may have written it when she was 18, but when did she like truly, you know gain fame was probably not for yeah right. you know maybe, a oh. yeah maybe not even her lifetime yeah no brilliant it really I mean I do I want to I want to include this in literature classes it really was a great um a book just so many levels yeah and kind of different like most literature classes do you know great Gatsby or mm-hmm. you know Romeo and Juliet Pride and Prejudice like those types of things which I love those are some of my all-time favorite books right. but this is like the the one people have heard of, but but it's not in most literature classes, I don't think. And why not? That's what I was kind of thinking. I was like, if it's not in there, it must be for a reason. It's something bad. Like, you know, it's clean. Yeah. Like, there's no cussing. Yeah. I mean, like, there's no, yeah. I mean, a, a little violence, but it's not, like, gory and gruesome. I mean, there's no, like, you know, sex. There's there's nothing inappropriate in it. I was, yeah. I was this is I mean, I mean this movie is, I mean. I mean, this book, sorry. This book doesn't even have, like, a movie rating of PG. Like, yeah. Literally, <laughs> yeah. the worst thing that happens is this monster chokes out a couple people. Right. Like, and I it's mean, like, oh, yeah. but, you know, considering what the, you know, the type of TV that's on today and, you know, the what goes by for a kid's movie now. Right. I mean, this is nothing. Nothing. And to think that this is, like, considered horror, like, I'm, I was kind of worried going into it, because I'm not a, I don't like scary stuff, I don't like horror, and I think this is, like, categorized as, like, a classic horror book, isn't it, Sean? That's crazy. It is is a part of horror fiction, but I think it's, 
I mean, because there is element, there is the, like the sci-fi elements and the monster. Definitely sci-fi. Was, I believe it was a horror book before they classified it as science fiction. Probably. Um, but I mean, it, it's supposed to bring a mirror up to society. There, it, you know, like most horror books, it's not necessarily a scary story, but it's supposed to tell you something about society and possibly yourself. It was, right. it was more like a Black Mirror type horror to me, like that show, you know. Um, like it wasn't jump scary type horror. It was like you right. said, like showing you the possibilities of what can happen if you're not careful with technology or science or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. No, I agree. Um, did you guys have any other questions to talk about? I had one just because, you know, the teacher and me, I always find like a quote and I'm like, okay, so what do you think about that? So one of the, the quotes that um, towards the end, I wanted to hear what your thoughts were um, when uh, when the uh, the monster says he is. I'm, let me see if I can think about what kind of context it was. I just marked it, and I just thought that was such a good quote. I wonder what they think. He says, "Evil fenced for evil thenceforth became my good," and and that really made me think how why um and what do you think when when he says evil thenceforth became my good towards the end of the book that was the monster saying it yes yeah so that reminds me of one of my favorite book quotes of all time which is darkness does not always equate to evil just like goodness does not belong to the light um it's just a, a small quote that I read from a book back in like high school, some random fiction book that just, you know, you can do, you know, the wrong thing for good reasons, just right. like you can do the right thing for the wrong reasons. Right. Um, it's all a matter of perception and, you know, perception is always going to be skewed until you learn the whole story. And that's a thing that they, that she brings up multiple times. She does. That, yes. Oh, we're going to take a moment to, you know, we're going to take a moment to sidestep and hear from his side or hear a different perspective, which, you know, like you said earlier, you know, you brought up kind of Shakespearean where, you know, the character steps and does an aside speaking just to the audience, where in this case, instead of it being to the audience, all of the characters get to react as well. Yeah. Yeah, I, I thought it was interesting, like, everything that the monster has gone through. I mean, you really don't consider him a monster until after he burns the house down, which is, you know, pretty bad. But but before that, I mean, he's, he's pleading to Victor, and he says, let me tell you my story. You abandoned me. I was scared. I went to the woods. I didn't have food. I didn't have water. I didn't know how to speak. I didn't know any of this. So I taught myself, and I hid, and, you know, all of the, all of these things that he you know, was doing, I mean, when he says evil, you know, therefore became my good, it, he couldn't be good. He tried to be good. He, he pleaded with the father and what happened? You know, they, they outcast him. He saved the girl from drowning and he was shot at, you know, every good he did always resulted in, in a a negative evil coming back to him. So when he says, you know, evil, therefore became my good, he could do no good. I mean, I just thought that was so interesting because we see his kind of progression from, um, you know, try, just really being good 
and and wanting to just be involved and included in society and in a family to becoming this monster who's just on this killing rampage and how he got there. Um, I think that quote at the end, it's it's almost towards the end of the book, really sums up his his journey. Yeah. Well, and that kind of, you know, sad to talk about, but goes into, you know, murderers or like people that are shooting up schools. Like so much of that is they're feeling so much pain from being bullied or being abandoned or all these types of things. And that's how they decide to lash out. And that's kind of what he did. You know, he, he was trying to do good. He was trying to make friends. He was trying to join a community and just kept getting rejected and rejected and rejected. And that's happened one too many times. And he just flipped, you know, that's a perfect analogy. That really is. And that really speaks to human nature then, because this was 200 years ago and we're in now 2019. I mean, that speaks to human nature. So that's an excellent point. Another thing going off on this is that I, that I found interesting. And I know, you know, he says, you know, evil became my good, but when he kept getting pushed out by human society, you know, after trying and trying and trying, and he finally is like, I can't do this anymore. Right. I need, but still having this feeling of wanting to hold humanity accountable instead of striking back against all of humanity, he went to his creator. True. And tried yes. to hold him responsible. That's true. Which, I mean, I mean, this is a monster who, you know, as we've seen, doesn't have a lot of high thinking processes going on, but somehow is able to sit there and go, I should hold the person responsible for creating me responsible for something. Mm-hmm. And I, I found that like incredibly mature for yeah. a monster that, you know, is all instincts. You know what I think it, it just reminded me of too, because that spoke to me as well, like his creator and that connection to his creator. Um, when he was in the woods and he found the backpack, one of the books that was in there that he read was Paradise Lost mm-hmm. and the and between God and Adam and Eve and um, the, the creation and the creator. That was not lost on me. That's why I'm like, I should have been teaching this in literature class. Like that's, I mean, because that's the connection. That's where he builds that, um, this that is idea. Yeah, of how a creation and a creator relationship should be, and and when creation has turned on the creator, and and you know, um, uh, you know, paradise lost is, you know, God and and Adam and Eve in the, in the Garden of Eden, but God is a loving God in that story, and he he restores Adam and Eve, and so here's the monster reading it, thinking, my creator has abandoned me, he did not restore me, like this story, so. Um, yeah, I, it's, it's funny that, uh, you know, you were just saying he didn't know the only thing he knew were those, what, three books from that backpack, but one was Paradise Lost. And I, I just, that was not lost on me. I was, cause I've read Paradise Lost. I love Paradise Lost. Um, and, uh, and I've taught part of it in, um, in one of my classes and that's, uh, yeah, the relationship between a, the creator God and, and his creation, Adam and Eve. So that built kind of in his mind what that relationship should be. And, and when it wasn't, I could see how, yeah, it fueled his, his anger. Well, and even with all the abandonment, like the monster still had like a, a connection, like you were saying, Sean, like imprinted almost on Victor. And when, you know, he was, you know, like obviously 
trying to hurt him. But then when Victor actually died, like, I'm sure he was partially sad that, okay, now I'm never going to get a companion because right. I can't create one for me. But also I think he was sad that he wasn't going to have a chance to restore that relationship. He wasn't ever going to have a chance to like, you know, persuade him to understand that like, no, he just wants to be loved. He doesn't want to be abandoned. And so he had that kind of a connection like you would with your creator, you know? Exactly. I, I agree. Yeah. That was interesting there at the end. I find that his statement of I will light my own funeral pyre just absolutely, to me, it was heartbreaking. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. You really sympathize with the create with the creation, the monsters, oddly, you know, I mean, here's this murdering beast and you do, you really feel for him and, and sympathize with his, his whole plight. Yeah. I think that's part of what made this book so interesting is you go into it expecting like, okay, of course he's a monster. Like, you know, this is all just going to be about Victor and about how he's dealing with it, but it wasn't, it was just as much about the actual monster and kind of, you know, like, I don't know, trying to sympathize with him and understand his point of view. And he had a lot more of a humanoid mature thought process than I would have expected going into all right well that was a really good discussion I enjoyed that I know me too thanks so much for joining us Miss Andriani thank you you can call me Carrie now (laughs) (laughs) thanks for joining us during our discussion of Frankenstein we hope you'll join us again next month as we discuss The Cuckoo's Calling by Robert Galbraith aka JK Rowling aka the Dark Lord. <laughs> All right. After losing his leg to a landmine in Afghanistan, Cormoran Strike is barely scraping by as a private investigator. Strike is down to one client, and creditors are calling. He has also just broken up with his longtime girlfriend and is living in his office. Then John Bristow walks through his door with an amazing story. His sister, the legendary supermodel Lula Landry, known to her friends as the Cuckoo, famously fell to her death a few months earlier. The police ruled it as a suicide, but John refuses to believe that. The case plunges Strike into the world of multi-million dollar... Sorry. The case plunges Strike into the world of multi-millionaire beauties, rock star boyfriends, and desperate designers. Anna introduces him to every variety of pleasure, enticement, seduction, and delusion known to man. You may think you know detectives, but you've never met one quite like Strike. You may think you know about the wealthy and the famous, but you've never seen them under an investigation like this. Introducing Cormoran Strike, this is the acclaimed first crime novel by J.K. Rowling, writing under the pseudonym Robert Gilbert. Well, that's all, friends. Don't forget to follow us on fake Facebook and Instagram to follow along with our discussion. Bye, guys.